Well, it's really good to be here with all of you tonight. Um, I just want to start off with a story. Uh, my wife's name is Allison. She's here with us tonight. Uh, yeah, round of applause. That's correct. That is a correct response to Allison. Uh, when I met her uh, at Abilene Christian, which is where we went to college, uh, she, I knew from the very beginning that she wanted to go to the UK. Uh, both of us had studied abroad, uh, but she was dead set on going back, and in classic Allison fashion, she made it happen. Uh, she applied to a university there called Oxford Brooks and got in. She applied and got a job through our College's Study Abroad program, and I was like, how can I get there? Uh, because there's this thing called Brexit that was really standing in my way, uh, and I don't really have much to say about Brexit. So I, I had no idea how I would go, how I'd be there with her, uh, but God provided, and I got this internship there. And, and this church that I got to work with was incredible. Uh, it's actually, this is not a joke or an exaggeration, it is 1,000 years old. This church, the building, had been there for a thousand years. They had a plaque on the wall with all of the ministers and priests who had been there. And over the centuries, uh, you could see all of the names of the different priests. And one of the stories they told about how old their church was, just it's just unbelie unbelievable. Um, so the English, for whatever reason, do not have AC in their buildings, uh, which is insane. Um, but the, the, what they do to kind of counteract that is install AC in the floors of the building. So the floor heats up, then the heat rises. They kind of figured a way around that. Um, but when this church dug up the floors to uh, the church building, there were bodies, like remains, from the time of the bubonic plague in Europe, they had to quarantine the church because they were like, we don't want anyone to get the plague. That's not an exaggeration. They had to go to another church and have like different worship services because they dug up potential plague like underneath their church. And I realized like when they told this story that when you become a Christian, it is a lot more than opting into a community in the present. When you become a Christian, you join a massive story. And people can actually describe their story in so many different ways. Uh, some people will describe their story by talking about their family history, where they grew up, uh, the story of their country. We, we tell our stories on so many different levels, but one story, more than all the others, is, is deepest to Christians, and that's the story of Scripture. And sometimes when we read the Bible, I think we, we think of stories that happened a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and then we try to fit those stories into our lives. Um, but I love the way that Robert Jensen, a theologian, puts it. He says, Scripture's story is not, some, uh, not a part of some larger narrative. It is itself the larger narrative of which all other true narratives are parts. He says, when reading scripture, don't try to figure out how what you are reading fits into some larger story. There is no larger story. Try to see how your story fits into scriptures. Uh, so I just wanna, I wanna talk a little bit tonight about how big your story could be 
and how a small story like yours can be caught up in something so much grander than you. So I want to share this story from the Old Testament that I just think is amazing. Uh, it's from the book of Ruth. And I'm just going to read uh, some of the, the verses to you and kind of share why I think this is uh, such a big deal. So it says this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Aphrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These sons took Moabite wives, and the name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there for about ten years, but then both Malon and Chilion the sons died, so that the woman Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So what you've got to know to understand this story is that in ancient cultures, uh, women who lost their husbands were in a very scary position. Uh, without any wealth or protection from a family, um, you know, there's no such thing as 911. There's no such thing as nonprofits to protect women and children. They are absolutely out on their own. And if other men from other tribes don't perceive uh, the men in your life as threats, they are in a very vulnerable situation. So this woman, Naomi, is in a foreign land, a foreign country. She doesn't have her husband. She doesn't have her two sons. And this is a disaster waiting to happen. And so Naomi decides that she needs to go back to her home country. It says, Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields that the Lord had visited his people Israel and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two, two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt uh, with the dead and with me. And what she's basically saying is, look, you need to go back to your home country. If you come back to mine, that won't be safe. I'm doing this as a last-ditch effort. I'm going to go back to my home country. Maybe I'll be safe there, but you need to play it safe. So I'm going to release you from any obligation to come with me. You need to go back home. And this, man, this thing that she says to her two daughters-in-law is so sad. She says, the Lord grant that you might find rest, each of you in the house of your husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, 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 we're going to return with you to your people. And she says, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go back on your own way. I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, why would you wait till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices again and wept. I mean, you, you've got to hear the suffering in her voice. I've lost my husband. 
I lost one of my sons, and then I lost my other son. I cannot stand the, the thought of bringing you back to my home country, not being able to provide for you, not being able to make sure you're going to be saved. We just can't risk that. You've got to stay with your people. They lift up their voices and weep. She's trying to say, look, cut your losses. Just go home. If you're with me, you're, the hand of the Lord might go out against you too. And in one of her daughters-in-law leaves. But Ruth, this very young widow, decides to stay with her mother-in-law. And Naomi doesn't get it. She says, look, your, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Go with her. But Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Now, you may, you may have heard uh, those words in like a wedding service. Uh, they're, they're kind of classic uh, vows that people make. But the, the implications of what Ruth is, is doing is so risky. She's going back to this, this foreign country she's never been. She's going with a, a mother-in-law who definitely cannot provide for her. She is a vulnerable, vulnerable widow with absolutely no resources. And she says, yeah, I'm going to stay with you. And when they get back, Ruth meets a man named Boaz. And they get married and, uh, I guess, happily ever after. And when you read this Old Testament story, you're like, why is this in here? Like, what does this have to do with anything else in the Bible? But you actually get a genealogy right after this story. Ruth and Boaz have a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. And Jesse has a son named David. And David becomes king of Israel. And if you're a Christian, you know that David is the ancestor of Christ. And Christ is pretty important to us. So all because of this self-sacrificial act, by this tiny, what seems tiny to us, risk of saying, no, 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 I will go with you. I will be with your people. I'll take that risk because I want to be loyal to you. I will have your God. I will be buried next to you. Because she does that, she becomes the ancestor of Christ, which sounds pretty awesome. And she's remembered for that in Scripture. Um, Y'all started this series off by talking about belonging to God. Ben talked last week about belonging to each other. And tonight we're talking about belonging to the universal church. And what I think that really means is that when you become a Christian, you join the largest story in the history of the world. The biggest, the greatest, most epic story you could imagine. That's what you're a part of. And you might think, well, I don't really want to be involved in the church because the church doesn't have the best reputation in the world. But I think there are things that God has done through the church that are absolutely amazing to me. 
That not until you're, you're actually told what the church has done over the centuries, you realize just how grand of a story this really is. Because the church, unlike every other world religion, has intentionally spread all over the world. Every other major religion is predominantly still in the location of its origin. The center and majority of Islam is in the Middle East. Hinduism, Buddhism, Shintoism, and Confucianism are all still in Southeast Asia. Judaism is all over the world, but only because of persecution, not because of a sense of mission. The church, from the very beginning, said, we're going to go out to all the nations. Jesus sent us to every single nation, and we will go there. And what's amazing to me is just how global the church really is, and on purpose, 500 years ago, the average Christian was a Catholic European man. The average Christian today is a Pentecostal woman in Africa, Southeast Asia, or Latin America. We're everywhere, y'all. You cannot, you cannot go somewhere without finding Christians because we wanted to go there on purpose. And, it's, and all of that diversity of the church is rooted in the Bible. Jesus commands his disciples to go to all the nations. In the book of Acts, you see uh, Christians uh, go back to modern-day Iran, Iraq, Turkey, Egypt, and Italy. You see that Paul says this in all of his letters. There's neither slave nor free, uh, male nor female, uh, Jew or Gentile. He talks about how this, this message is meant for everybody. One of the biggest decisions that we see in the Bible is made in Acts chapter 15 when they say Gentiles, meaning non-Jews, do not have to become Jewish in order to become Christian. No, they can be, they can be Christians too. Just as a fun fact and kind of researching this, um, Africans were Christians before British Christians. We often have this view that that Europe was kind of the center of Christianity before anything else, but two slave brothers converted the entire countries of Ethiopia and Eritrea in the 300s. Christianity is everywhere, y'all. It's universal. We actually had a guy that recently uh, on Sunday morning, I went up to him after church, uh, and he was actually staying in town at the AT&T Center, and I went up to him, and I said, hi, my name is Mitch, and he introduced himself. His name is Ahadi, and he said, I'm from the Democratic Republic of Congo. I come from a Pentecostal church, and we would like your church to pray for us. And I was like, you came all the way to Texas for that? <laughs> Couldn't believe it. And he, he just happened to be in town, but he, he got up from the AT&T Center. What's the closest church? University Avenue Church of Christ. Walked over. I met him, and now I have this guy's email from the Democratic Republic of Congo, because we're everywhere. Like Christians, the church is universal. We are all over the world. I love this story from Rebecca McLaughlin. She wrote this incredible book called Confronting Christianity, and she's this British woman, and she's talking about how she's at a park uh, in England, and she's with her daughter, and her daughter runs up to this older Chinese woman and says, do you trust in Jesus? And the woman replied, excuse me. And Rebecca McLaughlin was mortified, but her daughter just said the question right back. Do you trust in Jesus? And the woman said right back to her, she goes, oh, Jesus, I do trust in him. I'm so glad you do too. 
And they looked at each other, and uh, Rebecca McLaughlin started talking to uh, her, and they realized that they both had assumed the other wasn't a Christian. This older Chinese woman thought, this Br British woman isn't going to be Christian. None of them are Christians. And she had assumed the same thing about her. They were both wrong because the church is universal. It's everywhere. And I don't know if it's ever just blown your mind, like, how old Christianity is, but it's just, it's amazing to me. We actually have this woman at our church named Olena Sloan, and she is 101 years old, y'all. And she is, like, with it. She can have conversations with you. She is smart. She is sharp. And what's amazing is she was born in 1918. She was breathing before women could vote. And she has seen a woman run for president. When I went over to her house and she gave me her whole like family story and life story, she said that her grandfather owned slaves. Like when it was legal. <laughs> and she has seen a black man become president. She is 101 years old. And she has been around for 5% of the church's life. Like, we're amazed by her. We're amazed by her life and her legacy and all the things that she has seen. The church has seen 20 centuries of history. And if you just think about all the different people that have had the same faith as you, it's just mind-blowing. There, there are people who had the same faith as you when communists took over Russia. And when the printing press was invented, and when Muhammad first got his revelations and started talking to people about Allah, we have been everywhere and every when. That's how universal the church is. And I think what is just compelling to me about this is kind of two, two main reasons for all of us. The first thing is this. Whatever defines your story is not as important as this ultimate story. Your family is important. Your nation is important. Your background is important. Uh, your, this world is important. But it is not as important as what Jesus has to say about you. Someone can mistreat you because of your sex. Someone can mistreat you because of your skin color. Someone can mistreat you because of your background, where you come from, your education. But you are loved by God, and you belong to the most grand, epic story you could imagine. That's what that means. When you get caught up into that story, it trumps. It is greater than. It supersedes all of those things. The second thing that I just love about the, the idea of belonging to the universal church is that you don't have to invent your spirituality out of thin air. Because there is nothing more fleeting than a spirituality invented last week. It's going to come and go. It's not going to have the re reliability and sturdiness of a faith that has been around everywhere and every when. And it's so comforting to know that this faith, the faith that you have, the faith that I have, it actually has helped people through persecution. Um, a few years ago, there were 21 men uh, captured by ISIS. And they were all uh, put into orange jumpsuits. They were all construction workers. And, they, and most of them, we actually know, 20 of the 21 were Coptic Christians. 
Now, when you become a Christian in Egypt, when you become a Coptic Christian, they will tattoo a cross on your wrist. And when you do that in a predominantly Muslim society, that is not a social status boost. That means you will be made a second-class citizen from here on out. And all 20 of those 21 men had that cross on their wrist. And because they had that cross on their wrist, they were kidnapped and killed. As the members of ISIS went down the row and killed all 20 of those men, we actually don't know much about the 21st man. We don't know if he was a Christian before that. We have no clue his history. But they killed each one, and then they got to him. And they said, what do you believe? And he looked at all the men who had just died for Christ, and he said, their God is my God. Their God is my God. And they killed him on the spot. That faith that he might have had just for minutes. We have no idea if he had faith before that. He might have had that faith for minutes. But he saw what that faith can do. The way that it can endure throughout 20 centuries. The way that it can be reliable in every kind of situation, including the most tragic one you can imagine, martyrdom. And he said, their God is my God. He died for it. And I think for me, knowing that I belong to something grander than myself has really, really helped my faith. Uh, because there are Christians in church who annoy me. Huge surprise. Uh, there are people at church who I'm sure I annoy. There are older Christians that frustrate me, and there are younger Christians that frustrate me, and when I turn 30 and 40 and 50, younger Christians will frustrate me. Um, Christians are just kind of uh, in that business of getting on each other's nerves, liking different things, not being able to understand each other, having so many differences coming from so many different backgrounds, but they know that they're all part they all belong to the universal church. And when you join that story, if you're not a part of that story, if you're not a Christian, that's what you can be a part of. It's the story that begins with creation and ends with new creation. You're in the same story as Ruth and Naomi. You're in the same story of David, and you're in the same story of Jesus. There is no larger story. There's no larger story out there, and you can be a part of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed that you have been working out this epic, centuries-long story throughout every nation on earth. It started in the Middle East. It moved all over the world. It's come to America. It's moving still. It's always on the move, always uh, involving new people. 
And what we love so much about this is that our faith translates into every language. We create new songs just to reflect other aspects of your glory and majesty because the church is everywhere and it's every win. It's universal. There's never been a time without people who knew you. They may not have known you perfectly, but they knew you. And you want everyone to be a part of the largest story there is. I pray for anyone here tonight uh, who feels like they don't have a story or that their story is too small. I hope that they know they can be a part of this. You want everyone to join in this story. Wherever they come from, wherever they're headed, they can be a part of this. And like Ruth, like the Egyptian Christian, they can say about Christians, their God is my God. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.